In ancient Roman religion, Romina or Diva Romina was a goddess who protected breastfeeding mothers. Now, my guest today can only be described by me and so many other people that she works with as the goddess of breastfeeding. The beautiful, light, warm Amberly Harris. This lady changed my life. I was someone who had an extremely traumatic breastfeeding experience the first time with my first baby. And I had a lot of grief and a lot of, pun the pun, let down (laughs) about that experience. And I think breastfeeding trauma is something that is not discussed nearly enough. And it's really sometimes underestimated by people just how traumatic and grief-stricken it can be when things don't come as easily as we hope them to or they're challenging to the point where we just go, nah, I can't do this. I'm not going to be able to do this and all the sense of loss and shame that goes with that. So second time around for me, you know, I had good support. I had a doula and she said, no, I reckon you will be able to do this. Talk to Amberly. And as I say, she changed my life. My second breastfeeding experience was was also traumatic as well, but I got through it this time because I had the right support, because I had consistent support, because there were just a few things, really simple things, simple fixes that changed my experience to make it not as horrific as it was the first time. And so I'm here 15 months on with baby number two, still breastfeeding. So I'm kind of of the like, God, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And I think this particular episode, I don't want it to be interpreted as me saying, you know, you've got to breastfeed, even if it's like awful and terrible for some people, like we're all different. And so I hope what comes across is that Amberly and I are both very passionate pro-breastfeeding people. But in saying that, that's not about saying that for people who really struggle and either don't want to because that's a choice they're 100% able to make as independent women um, or that, you know, they struggled and couldn't get through it or there are all sorts of other things that happened that we are saying, well, you should have tried harder or you should have done this or you should have done that. It's not about that at all. What I'm hoping this podcast will be helpful for is for the birth worker who has the client um, who is struggling or is worried that she's going to struggle like I did because of all the kind of things in the background leading up to why I thought I was going to struggle. And so I thought this would be useful because I think it might be helpful. Like it's skimming the surface. Um, We're not getting into lots of stuff about trauma from say abuse or surgery or other kind of complicating factors to do with that it is more just the general I've had a shit breastfeeding experience and why might that be let's unpack some of that and what can we be doing differently so I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I have enjoyed working with this wonderful 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 woman I can't wait to introduce her to you Hey, Amberly. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Hi, Erin. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be part of your podcast. I am so excited for the excuse to talk to you again. 
Exactly. We haven't seen each other for a long time. It's lovely to reminisce. <laughs> it is. It's, um, so my youngest is 15 months. Yeah. So Gosh. Is, yeah. <sighs> let's, um, let's start a bit with, I think we were talking just before we started recording about mm. this idea of breastfeeding trauma being something that is potentially set up for people as an Mm. expectation when they don't even realise it in some of the ways that we talk about breastfeeding, the myths that are Mm. out there. Mm. Um, Can you talk us through, I'm sure there's loads, (laughs) can you talk us through (laughs) some of the top breastfeeding myths that are out there that could potentially lead to a mum already before she's even had a baby thinking I'm not going to be able to breastfeed or this is going to be really difficult or it's going to be really painful or Mm. whatever the story might be. Yes, absolutely. Because this so heavily does impact a lot of mothers' stories, I feel like, and their journeys. Um, The latest thing, the sort of theme that I'm hearing a lot is for a lot of mothers having their babies in this day and age, their mothers were born, were, you know, had them. So, you know, maybe mothers having their babies right now, you know, from the 80s or um, maybe the 70s and then maybe even into the early 90s. And uh, there certainly was a a bit of a theme back then um, where there was a lot more formula use. There wasn't as much education. So I've learned, obviously, I wasn't around, but um, I know from what my mum describes and a lot of a lot of women from that generation the impact on breastfeeding was it was very heavily influenced from the formula companies there was no rules against marketing and so there seems there seemed to have been a lot of formula use and and so maybe the the emphasis wasn't so much on breastfeeding so a lot of women I'm working with now are saying to me when we first meet look I really want to breastfeed but my mum told me that it didn't work out for her that you know she introduced formula at whatever age and um and so I'm really concerned that that I'm going to follow my mum's experience and that's the path I'm going to go on. And when I sort of try and unpack, and it's always hard to unpack a previous experience, but um, it does sound like nothing specific, like maybe went wrong with the mother's journey. It's just that it was very socially acceptable just to switch to formula. You breastfed Mm. for a short time and then you just moved to formula. And so, yeah, that seems to be really playing on a lot of a lot of mothers minds right now is that they just think well if it's in my family and that was my mum's experience then that's going to be mine so that's that's definitely um something that I've impacted by a lot these days but then it's also it's also experiences around them so their girlfriends their you know cousins that are a similar age um you know people in our social network unfortunately our breastfeeding statistics in Australia especially are are very low so if they've seen other women that have been unsuccessful breastfeeding because they had you know really bad nipple damage or they their babies weren't gaining enough weight and so they weren't making the right amount of milk for their baby so there's a lot more maybe negative storytelling that's going on that I think mothers are very concerned about how that's going to impact their own journey. I think um, that all that stuff is ringing so true for me, mm. as mm. you know. And when I look back at some of the things that I suppose were in my, oh, I don't know, story, if you want to call it that, of yeah. things that I already thought, well, this is up against me, this is up against me. One mm. was definitely 
that my mum wasn't able to. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know the story around that other than maybe it took a little bit longer than typical for her milk to come in. Mm-hmm. And so there was a definite like, come on, quick, hurry up, your baby's hungry, mm. get out of the hospital and go. But not more than that. But I remember growing up thinking, oh, some women can breastfeed and some women can't. And yes. I'm probably going to be in the category of women who can't. Mm. So already having that in my head. Yeah. <laughs> like you're already setting this up for yourself to be mm. potentially mm. quite a negative, challenging. I mean, it's challenging anyway, but already yeah. thinking I'm not going to be able to do this. Like we're looking at it like an achievement. Kind of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can or you can't. Um, mm. The other one I guess I wanted to talk about was this idea of um, like your anatomy. So I remember once mm. a, I can't even remember who it was, some healthcare professional saying to me, mm. Mm, you've got flat nipples, that's going to be really challenging for you. I'd be surprised if you're able to. Mm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> talk, talk to me about that sort of yeah. uh, phraseology. <laughs> yeah. That's a massive thing because I think as professionals, we have to be so careful with the language that we use because it's the same with birth. You'll know about that, about, you know, some of the, the, the speak in the medical, you know, field is, is very, it's so negative to women. And that's really something we have to be so conscious of the way we, we speak as for flat nipples or I, I tend to, I prefer to call them less prominent nipples. I'm start, I'm moving war towards because um, I don't know, it's just, it sounds a little bit more positive, mm. but um, the thing is that uh, Yes, there are mothers that have more prominent nipples than others, for example, but your baby doesn't know that. It doesn't know that there is other nipples available in the world. They, your baby knows yours and they are going to make it work with you. And while, yes, there might be a time of adjustment and some mothers might experience more nipple damage than others, but in, in time, as long as you're supported as a mother and you're working on your technique and you're giving your baby the chance to practice breastfeeding, I think we really need to remember that babies can navigate all of this like they really can Mm. um and so that's sort of like the part that I I sort of want to focus on but just because a mother has you know less prominent nipples it doesn't mean that her baby's not going to be able to successfully breastfeed it depends on the anatomy of the baby their their mouth their palate the arch of the palate but also their tongue and a lot of babies are very capable of navigating a mother's nipple and getting it all the way back to the soft palate so that's something that doesn't necessarily tell the story and the same thing goes with nipple damage we we get quite caught up in that if a mother has fair skin and burns easily in the sun well she's definitely going to get bad nipple damage and then Mm. a mother that um, has darker skin and doesn't burn well she's going to be fine and it's not always the case so we have to be careful with just like these flippant remarks to mothers just saying well that's going to be a pretty obvious thing that's going to happen to you because none of this is evidence-based. We don't know the melanin and the collagen fibres in a mother's skin and we can't say how it's going to, to work out. And my approach is always to be on the positive and feel like this is going to work out and if it doesn't, if things are a little bit derailed, then get support when it happens. Mm-hmm. It's mm. it's so important that we have these conversations, I think, because mm. even as like a, I don't know, someone who trained as a health professional, mm. sometimes I think we have this idea in our head that, oh, well, we should know all this sort of stuff. Yeah. We should know better. Mm. I mean, even things like 
introducing an induction or a C-section. I mean, they were mm-hmm. things that were not um, talked to me. So I had an induction with my first daughter. These mm-hmm. were things that were discussed with me in terms of how it might impact your breastfeeding. Yeah. And I know for some women it might even be as a blanket statement of, oh, we've had a C-section so you won't be able to. Mm, Talk to yeah. us about that. Yeah, the, I'm, that's a really passionate topic of mine and I have a real issue with a lot of that and it's why I developed a video series for mothers to understand the impact of all the different birth influences on breastfeeding because unfortunately if a mother is in a you know the birth suite and she's navigating her, her birth and say she wants pain relief or say they are saying, look, we want to put the scalp clip on your baby. We want to put something on your baby's head to monitor your baby's heartbeat. None of this comes up as to how that's going to impact everything that happens with your baby. No one's standing there saying, look, this is going to cause some trauma to your baby's head. They're more likely to get jaundice. Jaundice affects breastfeeding in major ways because jaundice babies need more volume to flush out the jaundice. Um, So, you know, all of this, and again, like any pain relief, like obviously pharmacological pain relief goes through to a baby. And so it can affect when a baby's born, how they coordinate their breath to start with. So if a baby isn't breathing well, they're certainly not going to try and breastfeed. They're going to be just saying to themselves, I've just got to figure out how to breathe first before I'm going to be interested in feeding. So all of this sort of thing needs to come up in conversation, but it unfortunately just doesn't. And while I would love the clinicians to take more responsibility, I actually think that we can give a lot of power to the women by teaching them so that they're really well prepared and they understand. And if they are wanting to, you know, go down a path of an induction or anything like that for whatever reason, at least they understand that, okay, yeah, this might affect my breastfeeding and so I have to be more gentle with my baby. I have to give more time or, you know, I have to be prepared to use donor milk, for example, if I need to top my baby up. But we definitely need to do better to educate women and to talk about not just birth influences, but the fact that birth and breastfeeding are very heavily interconnected. Mm. Talk to me about some other ones because there's all sorts of myths popping up in my head and they're probably asking <laughs> you too. <laughs> just yeah. Talking. Mm. Talk to me about another one that sometimes comes up. At least there's mm. mixed mixed ideas about it. Say if a mum has gestational diabetes, as yep. I did, mm-hmm. first birth, mm-hmm. antenatal expression wasn't really something that was discussed yeah. with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the views that were shared at the time were that it could be dangerous, you could mm-hmm. go into labour, which yep. I have really late cookers, so it turns out that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> But um, that was one. And another one, I suppose, was it sh- you shouldn't need to do that. The hospitals should support you and give you mm. the time and the space that is needed. So you shouldn't need to feel that you need to antenatally express. What's your, what's your thoughts about some of these? Yeah, ideas? sure. Yeah. So I am a yeah, really firm believer in the benefits of expressing your colostrum in pregnancy um, and for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it, it gets you acquainted with your boobs. So it makes a mother familiar with, okay, how do I actually get this colostrum out? How do I do this technique? 
And it brings a really great sense of confidence when a mother can see that, oh, there's something in there. Like I actually have some colostrum and even though it's very small in volume, it's tailored perfectly to your baby's tummy. So I think it's a good thing to, yeah, for that familiarisation and to bring that level of confidence. But it also does help stimulate your colostrum because the whole idea is based on demand equals supply. So if we're Mm. removing the colostrum, a mother's breasts are going to get the message to say, let's make some more. And it means that you can store something so that if your baby does, like in your case with gestational diabetes, but not even like if a mother doesn't have that, um, if a baby's unsettled or if they lose more than 10% of their birth weight, you've got something already there to top them up with and you're not waiting on a midwife. And, you know, midwives, it's a, the hospital system, it's, they're busy. They have, you know, five women, that means five babies to look after and standing and expressing with a mother can take time. So, that, you know, you're not having to worry about getting stressed over where's my midwife. You can just go, look, my baby's unsettled or the blood sugar levels dropped a little bit. I'm going to top up with some colostrum. And the idea is that you would still be doing it in the postnatal period. You would still be expressing as well, but you've got more because you've, you've done it in pregnancy, but you also know how to do it. So you, you're skilled at that technique and you're more likely to get more colostrum if you've been expressing in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, the whole thing about how it affects your body, that's a really good point. And, and I agree with you, probably it was sort of mentioned as being a risk factor that could send you into premature labour. So recently, and I'm trying to think of the dates, I can't remember the dates, but this has been studied. So it's called the DAME study, the D-A-M-E, and they did it through La Trobe University and they actually have had the chance to study women and they did do women with gestational diabetes actually um, and they found that there wasn't any link with a mother going into labour before 37 weeks. So they have found that there there was no adverse effects basically um, and why it didn't necessarily change the outcomes of the babies um, that were in that that um, group so it didn't necessarily say that they were less likely to have issues with their blood sugar or anything like that Um, what it did say is that there was nothing negative that came of it so the next plan is to do another phase with that study and work out whether there yeah we actually can create a better outcome for some of these babies in terms of whether they need to be topped up with formula or uh, whether they had issues with their weight or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, mm. which is amazing because I know for myself, which you know, because you know, you helped me through all this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the difference between first birth and second birth. I mean, that first mm. birth that was a huge part of the trauma for me was mm. okay, your baby's hungry, your baby needs to eat, we have got limited time, and feeling mm. already like a failure that I mm-hmm. couldn't get this baby to attach, mm. feeling pressure from some, not all of the midwives, but some of the midwives about well you should give formula and then people bickering in front of me about Mm. whether I should give formula and I mean I just come out of major surgeries yeah (laughs) you know kind of gosh with it and then the pressure of waiting oh waiting for this person to come in and milk me (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm. while I lay there like feeling yeah out of wow really Mm. traumatized really like I have I just can't do this. I've massively mm. failed at this. Versus the second time around mm. when I had, exactly as you talked about, gotten to know my own boobs, mm. took control of the situation and could be like, actually, even if my baby's not attaching well at the moment and even mm. if there's damage, knowing that I have this 
here yeah Mm. and I can give it to her myself and I can you know give the nipples a rest for a little while yeah such a difference I mean the Mm. first time I came out with bruises on my boobs from Mm. oh my gosh yeah you poor thing that's awful which happens to people Mm. when you're kind of like all right I definitely want to breastfeed I definitely Mm. want to keep going with this but Mm. this is like geez is this like what I have to do to get Mm. there yeah. So I know for me it made a phenomenal difference, mm. like awesome. having a colostrum versus not. So mm. hearing that flavors mm. information that actually mm. there's likely little like risk factors, I suppose. If yeah. You call it that. Mm. Amazing. So cool. Yeah. They still maintain that it's wise to do it from 37 weeks onwards. Mm. So even though there, there hasn't been any evidence to suggest it would put a mother into premature labour, um, just to be, you know, more cautious. And, and given too, your, milk, your colostrum production isn't going to be, there's not going to be as much available before 37 weeks anyway. So you're better off to wait and do it from there onwards. And, yeah, obviously if you, you wouldn't do it if you had like a history of premature labour. But otherwise, um, yeah. Yeah, fine to do from 37 weeks. Mm. And on the on the note of myths, is there any others, like the major ones that we haven't covered that you've thought of as we've been talking? Yeah, I think the main one is that you, you won't have enough milk for your baby. That seems oh, to be one, a big it? one. Yeah, a lot of mothers are really questioning. And, and unfortunately, it's really wrapped up in the whole frequent feeding, like babies unsettled, um, I mustn't have enough milk for my baby. So... That's a really tricky one because we need to remember that there there are other things that we look for to see that a baby is getting what they need from breastfeeding. They, you know, we need to be reassured that they're content and they do come off the breast content most feeds. Yes, they do have a period of cluster feeding and babies are unsettled, but that they do have times that they come off and they seem happy. Um, We're also looking at the output, whether a baby's weeing and pooing as we would hope and that they're reaching their developmental milestones. Um, And then obviously it's their weight as well. So uh, there's a lot of mothers that I'll meet that are anxious about their baby being unsettled and they'll say, look, I've I've started giving formula because I just don't feel like, I feel like my baby's hungry. Uh, but they haven't gone back and looked at all of those other things. So I think that's important that we, we explain and that women understand what it actually looks like if we are concerned about a mother's milk supply. And, and my suggestion is always to go down the path of some galactagogues and to express and to top your baby up with express breast milk and do what we can to stimulate more milk production as opposed to introducing something like formula that's more likely to to negatively impact a mother's milk supply. Mm. Yeah, the other side of that too, the sort of a bit of a side note, but um, we also talk a bit about, so the World Health Organization have found that less than 5% of mothers anatomically are unable to make enough milk for their babies. So what they're really alluding to with that is something called insufficient glandular tissue. And it's uh, some mothers have breast tissue that doesn't really change in pregnancy. So their boobs, nothing happens over pregnancy. They don't notice them getting bigger. They don't have the areola darkening and and, enlarging, you know, all of that. Nothing really happens. And then when they do have their baby, they don't experience that that engorgement, that sensation of of, um, the milk coming in. And when they, you know, a lot of mothers get really full and lumpy boobs and they feel like they've got implants, like they have really, they really notice a difference. So with mothers that don't have this 
happen, this is quite often the case, it's this insufficient glandular tissue. And so these are the mothers that, yes, do have a lot of trouble, even if we introduce galactagogues. You can imagine if a mother's only got so many milk ducts and Mm -hmm. we're asking them to perform at peak capacity, they'll be doing their absolute best. But if she's only got so many, they may not have the ability to make the right amount of milk. So although this is a small percentage in the world, sort of 5% or less, I actually think there is other factors that are influencing breastfeeding these days that's not to do with something like that that's sort of in that 5% and it's an anatomical thing. I think there's a lot more going on with the way women are giving birth these days. There is a lot more inductions, a lot less babies choosing their birthday. There's a lot more cesarean births and there's a lot more postpartum hemorrhage. So, you know, all of these things, they do impact a mother's breastfeeding journey. And while I'm not saying that they are unable to breastfeed, I do think that they have a really challenging experience for the first six weeks or so. And it makes sense to me that a lot of mothers abandon breastfeeding because of how challenging it can be for them uh, for you know all of these other things that are that are that are going on Mm. yeah on that note as I'm thinking about it for myself talk to me about this idea of pain like I know Mm. from a psychological point of view talking about pain is difficult because what's a 10 out of 10 for me Mm. might be a 1 out of 10 for you and so measuring pain is quite a subjective yes to do But I remember for, at least for my own experience the first time and the second time, Mm. this sense of what's a normal amount of pain versus Mm. what's a not, I don't want to use that word, like what's a not normal amount of pain. But I think (laughs) something that potentially impacts people when they're breastfeeding is that you have like excruciating pain and Mm. that breastfeeding can be excruciating. Mm. And you have people saying, as again, they said to me, well, yeah, you you might just be one of those people who it is always going to be painful. Mm. Or then, you know, you're kind of trying to qualify it like, but the latch looks okay because that's something that has sort of struck mm. in my head of someone saying to me, but the latch looks really good. And I'm like, yeah. this, is, this is painful. And I remember yeah. getting to a point with my daughter when I was so exhausted, I just mm. said, oh, yeah, it's like a 2 out of 10. And it wasn't a 2 out of 10. It was like a 9 <laughs> couldn't be bothered, yeah. yeah. Because it just... No. I'm like, I'm saying to you, this is my experience. And someone just mm. keeps saying, but that shouldn't be your experience. I'm like, that's great, but that shouldn't be my experience. Yeah. But that is my experience. I'm living it, yeah. <sighs> Talk to me about this idea of pain and breastfeeding and for people mm. who are maybe sitting with this because they've had their own clients or had their own experience and going, it was just excruciating for mm. me. Yeah, that's really hard. I, I agree completely because there are mothers that – I'll work with at the very first breastfeed and their baby will go on and they will be like jumping out of the bed and they're like, is this it? Is this what it's supposed to be like? And mm. that, yes, like as you're saying, the attachment looks perfect to me on the outside, but I'm looking at them thinking, wow, this is really, really painful for you. So that is really hard. And a lot of it I sort of base off about, trying to help a mother get to the place where she can feel the difference between attachment pain versus ongoing pain. Like if they Mm. don't feel a difference between the baby getting the nipple back to the soft palate, taking that 10 seconds or so for, yes, the the attachment is very uncomfortable, verging on definitely painful for plenty of mothers. Um, So 
if they don't feel like after that 10 seconds or so things get better, they're like, it's just awful. Then I'm all about, okay, we break the suction. Let's start again. Let's try again. And just remembering like every breastfeed is that opportunity for a baby to learn and to get on properly. But it's a hard one, especially because the other way we can measure it is, is how do a mother's nipples look? Do they look healthy? Do they look grazed? Are they cracked? Have they now got fissures and she's bleeding and there's all this hemoceres fluid now coming out of her nipples and her breast pads are sticking to her boobs and, like, what are we dealing with? But the problem with just using that as a measure is that maybe the mother's nipples look healthy but she has super sensitive nipples and breastfeeding is horrendous for her. So, you know, none of that really matters as to what her nipples look like. If she's telling you the whole time that the whole experience is, is dread, dreadful, then, um, yeah, you know, you need to be helping her and trying to find positions that maybe feel better. Maybe you need to totally switch the way the baby's going to the breast and, and, and shift things around because, you know, while, yes, breast tissue adjusts and the nipple and areola has this amazing ability to withstand a baby learning how to breastfeed, but there are mothers who for months they'll say, they'll say to me, it took me months before I actually found breastfeeding that I could relax and it wasn't painful. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So the whole six-week thing is a reasonable guide, but it's not mm. like set in stone, is it? No, exactly. It's not set in stone. It's a, it's a good guide for the majority of women. The majority of women, those issues are really ironed out in the first six weeks. But certainly there are still women I meet often that will say, look, for me, it took me a couple of months. Or then there might be women that say, it didn't take me the six weeks. Like I was going really well after three weeks and then, you know, then my nipples felt completely comfortable. Breastfeeding was fine for me. So, yeah, it's a different experience for everyone. But the only thing I would say is if you get to the six-week mark and it's still challenging, I would be wanting to explore is there something else that we don't know of? Is there thrush? Is it nipple vasospasm? You know, is there some, some sort of bacterial infection in the nipple that we can't really see to just make sure that we've sort of covered all bases that, you know, just because you're using a good quality nipple balm, it might not be enough. We might need to be introducing some other things to help with, um, yeah, the attachment. So it's it really is a case by case kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, all the way. Yeah, and you know, different experience with every baby as well. Just because you've breastfed well in the past doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be smooth sailing with your next baby. Um, yeah, and the other way around, if it's been really challenging the first time, it, it history doesn't have to repeat itself. It different baby, different experience, and um, and yeah, all I can emphasize is to get help. <laughs> and so, what about for someone who's with mum and baby at the time, maybe for their first feed, whether they're a midwife, whether they're a doula or whoever's mm. there supporting them. And they do see that thing that you would have seen so many times and you're used to it, but the mum's mm. getting really distressed. Mum yeah. is in pain. Baby is screaming, mm. you know, clenched little fists. Like mm. I was actually with both of my daughters, I remember just like, oh, your hands are going everywhere. Yeah. I'm getting stressed. You're getting stressed. Yeah. I remember even at one point, um, yeah, with my second when you came to my house one day and you're like, okay, we're going to put it on the breast. I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> the fear, the mm. fear, and it's just mm. trying to convince yourself to do something that your body is screaming at you to go, no, this is going to hurt, it's going to be painful, it's going to be awful, whatever it is you're telling yourself because yeah. of past experience. Mm. How, how, how would you, how can any of us, how can we help 
Yeah, good one. Yeah, so to start with, a baby needs to be calm when they go to the breast. So if you are starting the feed and the baby's really unsettled, I would I, I would often just say to the mothers, okay, let's just calm your baby first. So let's just stop the breastfeed, pick your baby up. I always leave babies with mums if, if I can. So I would just say, just pop your baby over your shoulder or just sit them upright and just talk to them and let's just all stop and take a moment and calm and, um, and just, yeah, breathe together. And then once the baby has calmed, then I would say, okay, let's gently put baby back to the breast because we always want breastfeeding to be a positive experience for a baby. So that's sort of important. The other thing too is if a baby's crying, they're lifting their tongue up to the roof of their mouth. They're not going to get on properly. They need to be Mm. calm to actually do a big wide open mouth and go to the breast. So we always want to start off a feed calm. And then if the baby's settled and we put the baby to the breast, I mean, the most obvious thing that you can help with is exactly what you just alluded to babies love to get their hands in their mouth when they're trying to breastfeed and it's because in utero that's what they do they they drink amniotic fluid and they suck on their hands when they're doing it and it's all part of the feeding experience that they have their hands very close to their face if not in their mouth so it's it's hard for them to get used to oh okay hang on I've got to open my mouth and take the nipple in I can't take my hands in as well <laughs> so so I think it's important that um, while I'm not a, a fan of of swaddling babies and getting their arms out of the way babies need to have their arms to sort of be hugging a mum's boobs to help them feel centered and balanced but for the attachment their hands get in the way so the best thing you can do is to gently just hold a baby's hands I usually just put my thumb into the center of their palm so that they can hold on to my hand um, or if they're not interested in holding I would just yeah gently hold their sort of arm to sort of wrist and just guide it out of the way help just allow mum to get the baby on and then you can let go and they can just have their arms to themselves but partners are great at that as well that can be a job that you can just be like just let me get because yeah otherwise baby's getting anxious that builds up on mum's anxiety and yeah if the the attachment's taking too long yeah we just need we need a calm baby because then we're more likely to have a calm mum and what do you think about sometimes I suppose the idea that during the first feed, particularly if you've got a baby who's got low blood sugar or something like that, mm. that sometimes people rush to latch the baby on when maybe that initial latch could wait a bit longer. So I know you've got amazing mm. resources about the breast crawl. Can <laughs> you, I think most people, like we're assuming most people know the benefit of that. Yeah. But is there, say when a baby has low blood sugar, because Mm. my mum's had diabetes or something like that. Is there actually the urgency to get baby on and fed that sometimes is, I don't know, perpetuated or is that something that we're potentially rushing? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one actually. So if a baby has a low blood sugar, it's a bit of a different story. I would be, yeah, it would be my priority to get the baby onto the breast, but I would still be trying to do a breast crawl and give them the chance to search for it. It just depends on how long it's taking. If you Mm. feel like the baby is taking a little bit longer, I would just say to mum, do you want to just hand express some colostrum? Let's just give your baby a little bit to just tie them over and then we can take some more time to do the breastfeed. Um, because with the first breastfeed and yes, I have, I I am talk about this a lot. This is unfortunately is rushed so often in the birth settings these days. And it's just because 
it takes a long time that most babies will take on average around 30 to 60 minutes, but there is a lot of babies that will take closer to sort of two hours to get onto the breast and a lot of birth suites, they just don't have time for mothers Mm -hmm. to sit there, you know, having their baby do this leisurely sort of crawl because meanwhile they need to get paperwork done and they, they need to, you know, get a mother fed and pass through the shower and then get her up to the postnatal ward. So it's one of those things that it just depends on how long it's taking a baby. But the breast crawl itself, it's a sequence. And, you know, babies start off with they salivate and they chew on their hands and then they will start to um, sort of leverage themselves with their elbows from the mother's sternum. And then they launch themselves to one side, right or left, and then they bob their head and use their sense of smell mainly to smell the nipple and areola before they go on and self-attach. So if we speed any part of that up, the baby's out of a sequence so they can sort of feel a little bit, you know, not quite ready for the whole experience. Um, And then if we don't allow the crawl to happen and we just move a baby straight to a mother's boob and then the midwife, well-meaning, but, you know, shapes a mother's breast and puts the baby on, the baby probably isn't ready for that attachment. They're less likely to have a big wide open mouth to have dropped their tongue down and be ready to to attach properly. So, you know, self-attachment is that gold standard. It's the what we would try to achieve in saying that it doesn't work for everyone and we have to be considering, yeah, like the birth influences. Is there reasons why did this baby choose its birthday? Have they got a suck reflex that's mature? Um, yeah, are they breathing properly? Is there any pain relief that's on board? Have they had a Caesar and they've got a belly full of mucus and they're not hungry at all? Mm-hmm. So, you know, these babies are not likely to necessarily do a breast crawl. So in that instance, we give it the time. They don't go on, no problem. Like, yeah, hand express some colostrum. Um, but, yeah, I the thing with breastfeeding support in general is women need time. They need time. Breastfeeding takes a long time and if you don't put a baby skin to skin and wait for all of this to happen and sort of rush it you're just doing that mother and baby a huge disservice Mm. and it's setting them up I suppose for Mm. the very high likelihood that they are going to get that sense of failure yeah and that it didn't work for me particularly I suppose when you're putting like a time limit on it yes Okay, so we've all heard about like the first hour undisturbed. But if the implication there is your baby should be able to do this or you Mm. should be able to do this in an hour Mm. and if you can't, then you probably need to think about formula or you probably need to think about doing something else. Mm. As you say, it's already when you're already exhausted and you're hungry and you're all of those things, not like to even mention all the things that sometimes we expect clients, patients, women, whatever you want to, Mm. use for your phraseology mm. uh, not even considering what other trauma they might have had yeah no exactly you know, it's been assault if there's been you know times where their body has been handled without mm. their consent mm. by someone. and then if you are shoving a baby on a boob mm. without that knowledge it's easy I suppose sometimes to do the well I didn't know she should have told me and I think that sometimes it's a particular bugbear <laughs> that I've got yeah that mm. we expect people to tell us things Mm. that they haven't ever told anybody and maybe don't even know are going to impact Mm. their experience of birth and breastfeeding. So it's always something I think 
this is why I ask you the questions about, you know, in the case of, well, if there isn't low blood sugar and there isn't an emergency and there isn't this, Mm. yeah, if it really is just coming back to time, that is potentially a massive, massive help for people knowing Mm. that you don't have just this one hour and if you can't do it in that one hour, well, Mm. you've already sort of been pegged as, oh, well, you're a mum who can't breastfeed Mm. or you've got challenges or you're being too difficult or you're taking too long. or Mm. But really there's no kind of number of, well, if you need to take your baby off 10 times Mm. in 10 minutes in order to persist, that that's there's no kind of range of like normal versus not normal. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's a big part about doing that education in pregnancy so that if you do get into the situation of the breast crawl and you already know that, okay, well, I know, you know, I ended up, I needed to be induced. So I know that, you know, this is going to affect baby in these ways. Or um, that's why I think it's helpful that mothers can not be so caught up in how it's all going to go. But in saying that, maybe they, they weren't induced. Maybe they had like a textbook labour. And um, and then things didn't all sort of pan out. Their baby fell asleep and wasn't interested in doing the breast crawl. So I think sort of what's helpful to remember is, I mean, the breast crawl is reproducible for many months after birth. And that's why, you know, I'll always put baby skin to skin when I work with them. And every breastfeed I do is skin to skin to ignite those instinctive breast-seeking behaviours. So, yeah, definitely the message with that, I think, is to make sure that women understand that so much of this it's not irreparable like we have an opportunity for to keep working with babies we just need to keep yeah giving the time and keep being calm and working at it as a team Mm. Mm. and what about this idea that sometimes you get inconsistent advice yeah because I know for me that was a huge huge roadblock Mm. with people who you think haven't you all got the same training you all work at the same hospital yeah three different people are telling me three completely different things and I don't know who to listen to and I don't know Mm. what to make of all of that consistency can make such a huge difference can't it yes gosh yes and it is it's the number one complaint for postnatal women I just can't imagine how overwhelming it is to get told things from someone and and then yeah something different from another Um, so yeah, I agree completely. And, and that's a huge motivation for doing the work that I do because I hope to be that, that source of support for women, giving consistent advice, giving them a plan before they have their baby, but also being that person to bounce ideas off and, you know, just, you know, they can send me a message and say, look, this has happened. What should, what do you think we should be doing? Um, so, you know, whether it's, it's, um, it's, it's someone in private practice like myself or someone else in a mother's area, I just think it's so worth, it's such a worthwhile investment to connect with someone that you trust and that you like and that you think, yep, I feel really confident having you in my corner when my breastfeeding starts and to call on for support. And yes, you'll still get help from the, the hospital staff or whether you have your baby at home, your, your midwife at home. Um, but yeah, also know that you've got someone that is devoted to breastfeeding support and yeah, that you feel like you can go to and not be so concerned about all the other opinions and whether they're you know professionals or not, you, you, that you have a plan and you're like, no, no, I know all this, I, I, I'm good. So, mm. Mm. And also I think the ability to come into someone else's space, I mm. think that makes a huge difference, particularly when you've had a traumatic experience. Mm. The last thing you want to do, I mean, 
in a hospital setting, I guess it doesn't matter how wonderful the facilities are. Mm. Going into a room like lined up with a bunch of other women. Yeah. Five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> yeah. It's not very inspiring. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't sound at all, does it? <laughs> no, no, it's no, true. For me, the, dif- the difference between being in that fluorescent lit room mm. with no windows and I think also like my partner wasn't able to be with me, which I totally mm. get and respect and think that that's mm. a good choice. But mm. for me, the difference between that and being at home in my own space with my mm. own pillows and having my husband there as well able to help me knowing mm. that, you know, we don't process information very well when we're mm. really stressed. Mm. So having him there, yeah, gently being able to like listen to everything that you were saying and sort of being able to like, oh, yeah, this happened and she said this. I'm like, oh, did she? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and as you say, be able to recheck things. So, you know, yeah. I used to get so much out of hearing your audio message mm. each day for mm-hmm. a few days or how, you know, frequently it was mm. as time passed. I just thought that makes such a difference mm. to just have someone in your corner, as you say, supporting you when I'm sitting there going, oh, I don't know if I can do this. This is hard. It's yeah. painful. There's damage. Mm. This is, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It makes such a difference, which you just, of course, you can't offer when you're in a hospital mm. setting. It's yeah. Not, it's not possible. No one would expect you to do that. But mm. I think that's why this is the place that we're in where it's like, okay, yeah, that's not your only option. And mm. I think for me for such a long time, I thought, well, this is it. Mm. Like, you know, I remember it was, you know, kind of coming up to Christmas time with my first daughter and mm. like lactation consultants were like, yeah, okay, we're pretty busy. At that time I couldn't get someone to come to my house. Mm. Um, so I just gave up. Mm. My husband yeah. tried so much. He's like, do you want to try this? Oh. And I'm just like, nah. I just, no, I yeah. don't want it. No. And I, as you know, I ended up um, pumping instead because mm. that worked for me. That was an option. Yeah. But I can see for so many people, if you don't have that support and you don't have other options, it's just like, it's just, it's just easier. Yeah. It's just easier to give up. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's the thing. I think, you know, there's a lot of, um, yeah, like breastfeeding clinics that you can take your baby to and, you know, while obviously it's great information still, but I just think the benefit of going to a woman's house uh, is massive. And and if you can't go to their house, then it's it's that opportunity for, yeah, like a video appointment that you can still see someone and talk to them and that, yeah, you can leave audio messages because there's something really a lot more personal, I think, about hearing someone's voice than just getting a text message telling you to do X, Y, Z. So, yeah, I agree completely. And your husband, I will never forget. I mean, he just goes down in my memory log of (laughs) the most supportive. He was so involved. And you can say that to women. You can say, look, it would be great if your partner sat in on the appointments, but it depends on the partner. Not everyone, a lot of, I do get the vibe from, from partners that, breastfeeding's you know women's work like they're just sort of like okay great the 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 midwife's here to breastfeed with you I'm gonna go and make dinner or I'm gonna go and do these other things and yeah that's great that's really helpful however exactly as you said like if we can gently encourage partners to be involved partners remember things they remember Mm -hmm. details that mothers are not going to retain they're so you know in that primal brain still their intellectual brain isn't retaining like you know memory 
and retention is so impacted with the experience of new motherhood that I think it speaks volumes when a partner is happy to sit in on something. And, yeah, I just feel like they just bring something really powerful and positive to breastfeeding when they're involved you know when I think it's not just about the mother the way you feed your baby it's a family issue so I just love when yeah partners are actually going okay I'm part of this we're in this together this is us like yeah it's awesome well even as you said just having a role like and that role Mm. might be as simple as like being the person who is calm to yes. hold baby for a few minutes or to just take their little hand and hold mm. it gently out the way instead awesome. of doing, you know, what yeah. <laughs> I did a few times and, and you end up yeah. the hand out the way and you start getting so frustrated and yeah. tense and then mm-hmm. baby's tense. And mm-hmm. So having somebody who's just there to kind of take up the information and be, I guess it's a continuation of birth really in the ideal sense is that your partner is there to be your yeah. Partner. Yeah, do the frontal lobe stuff and to mm-hmm. activate that part because they're not having to mm. use the lizard brain. So it's an interesting way of thinking about it that I think probably we don't talk about enough in terms of like, mm. as you know, like that birth doesn't stop mm. once the baby's there. Mm. No. As a lot of us are programmed to think and like, oh, yeah, there's placenta and then there's this and that, which we all kind of know I suppose, yeah. as birth yeah. workers. But it's that, again, mm. you see babies go off into the world and that's... Mm. You know, the end yeah, of the, the yeah, sometimes, yeah, mm. so true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there anything else from a, a, yeah, again, that sort of whether it's a dispelling myths or the kind of mechanics of breastfeeding or anything like that? Mm. Thinking again about this idea of breastfeeding trauma that is useful for us to consider. I think the main thing that I try and always take from it is that if I'm working with a mother who's had a previous traumatic breastfeeding experience, so much of that story is going to help the next breastfeeding journey. So I think there's so much we can gain from it and about unpacking that experience with a mother, I think is really important. Asking her what part of it was really hard for you. What are you worried about this time? Are you worried about the same thing or is there other things that are worrying you? And using that knowledge and that yeah that story to our advantage I think as professionals that's something that is really worthwhile and yeah it 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 helps it does shape a mother's the next breastfeeding journey um so I like to remind mothers of that that although you know we're so sorry that things didn't work out and and I guess the other part of that with trauma is obviously I'm trying to be very careful with the language I use because there's no part, you know, a mother who hasn't been able to successfully breastfeed, her her journey's been hard enough in, you know, the sideways glances from people, the shopping centre when she was preparing the bottle of formula or, you know, um, what people saying, oh, you know, you didn't, you, you didn't keep going, like what happened? None of that I don't think is anything compared to how that mother's beaten herself up. I think mm-hmm. we, we have no idea how she has gone through every day thinking I desperately wanted to breastfeed and this hasn't worked worked out. And so... Yeah, obviously I want to be really careful of the language I use with mothers in that way, um, but, I, but I like to remind them about that what happened then is going to help us now. And, yeah, it doesn't have to be the same story, but 
we, you know, this is how we're going to do things differently and sort of bringing, giving them some, some power with it or some confidence in that, oh, okay, well, that happened last time, but this is how I'm going to do things differently. And, yeah, using that previous experience as, as a positive and hopefully it being, uh, yeah, a, a, a positive experience in that way. Mm, and I think, look, there's even frameworks for how to do that. I mean, something I did for myself, which I remember the first time I emailed this to you thinking, mm. she's going to think I'm so nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> it was a comprehensive history. I was impressed. <laughs> but see, I just tackled this the way I yes. it out in yes. terms of thinking about how would I approach anyone else I know who had trauma? So yeah. in psychology and counselling and social work and probably a couple of other professions, mm-hmm. um, there's a framework that we use called the four P's. And I'm probably going to put something like this on my website because I think it's handy for people to use in any yeah. circumstances. But basically you kind of start looking at what are the predisposing factors. Mm. So, you know, for me it was knowing that I had a family history of not being able to breastfeed, knowing Mm. that I was told I had flat nipples and it was going to be difficult. Mm. Um, And then there's the kind of what's the precipitating. So what's the things that, why is it happening now? And so for me that kind of came under the, well, I was given a diagnosis of gestational diabetes and there were Mm. blood transfusions and there was, yeah, Mm. I had an induction and all that kind of stuff that, never was communicated to me in terms of like, all right, it might just take a bit longer for your meal to come in and that's mm. normal. Mm. You know, so all those kinds of things like um, that first feed being really, really rushed as we talked about because mm. it was like, oh, if her blood sugar's a bit low, let's get her on. Yeah. As opposed to what could have been different if I'd had a couple of syringes of colostrum mm. just packed. That would have taken so much pressure. Yeah. Off me, off baby, and actually off the midwife <laughs> supporting me. Yes. So it's yes. funny that that's not necessarily something that people are encouraged to do. Mm. And then I suppose you kind of go down the line of, um, you know, the perpetuating stuff. So why did it continue to happen? For me, mm. because of the hemorrhaging, because of the induction, because of maybe not even any of that, but just the way my body makes breast milk was, it took a bit longer. Yeah. And all that stuff that went on about, well, you know, should you give formula? Should you wait? Should you keep going? Mm. You know, all the inconsistent advice. Yeah. So that's that part of it. But then I think also something that is so important to do is thinking about like the protective stuff. So what was it? Like not just all the, what's all the stuff that went wrong with your breastfeeding, but what are some of the things that potentially help? So mm. for me it was I didn't have any issues with milk supply. Mm. I had loads of it, like both times I had loads. Never had mastitis. Actually, to this day, I've never had mastitis. Yeah, woohoo. Um, you know, having a supportive partner. Yeah, Being massive. able to use a breast pump, like even mm. though the breastfeeding itself didn't work out, I was able to pump for mm. six, seven months and that's an option. So I mm. think going through and doing that history with people and also finding the trying to find the positives when maybe it seems like there's no positives and definitely some mm. women I talk to are like there was nothing positive about it I can't yeah. find anything and the only like, it might just be like you tried mm. that might be like that's not mm. something to be sniffed at in and of itself is that you yeah tried? yeah yeah. 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 So true. Yeah. So much of it that you can unpack and try and find. And, but of course it depends on the mother's experience, but it is so important, I think, to try and find those silver linings. Mm. Mm. It's not always easy. And I think, you know, as well, like the, 
the way that we talk about this mm. is tricky because I I remember, you know, when well breastfeeding day came around the first time mm. I had my daughter, mm. I just felt so shameful and mm. marginalised and none of that was inherent in people jumping up and down and going, well, who I can breastfeed, you can't. Mm. It was all where I was at at the moment and the interpretation and, you know, all the stuff yeah. that goes around. Um, yeah. Just the way that we talk about things, and I'm a big proponent of that as well. It's like just because we speak positively about mm. one thing, it doesn't mm. mean that we are saying you're a failure if you give formula. We're not yeah. saying formula is evil. We're not saying you should have tried harder. If only you'd done this, if only you'd done whatever. Mm-mm. We can talk about things as a like this is a way to get through this. Mm while still being respectful and understanding of the fact that there will still be women who say, I tried everything mm. and it didn't work. And yes. it's not about us saying, well, you should have tried harder or you should have done this or you should have done that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's a, been a big, like a steep learning curve for me, certainly on my social media because, unfortunately, the work that I do, even though my message is about breastfeeding promotion, it inevitably makes mothers who were unable to breastfeed feel crap. And it's so hard. Like the amount of posts I get about, well, that's great, but some of us can't breastfeed. And, you know, there's so much hurt coming from a lot of the mothers that will write to me. And it's really hard. There's a quote that I read the other day, which I loved, which was her success is not your failure. Mm. And I thought that was really, really well written. Like I just applied it to breastfeeding and thought that's actually perfect. But, um, yeah, like you, none of that matters if a mother herself is beating herself up. Like she, she just, like it's so hard to get past something. And, look, I mean, f- with, a, you know, any trauma, I guess, I feel like time is a, is a good thing. Like time can, can certainly help and time does heal, but you need to give time time. Mm. Um, but it just depends on the experience though. And it depends on the woman and yeah, it's, that's all, that's a really, really difficult experience to navigate. Mm. We should wrap up. So mm. on that note, <laughs> I always like to ask people what they do for their own self-care practices. Yeah, Is good. there something that you want to share? It doesn't have to be, you know, mega highbrow or insightful or anything, but <laughs> I think yeah. we can always pick up other ideas and things from people when we discuss what are we doing for ourselves. And I think it's actually really good for us to sit down and go, hmm, what am I doing? So mm. is there something you can share with other birth workers that you do to look after yourself when you've had a particularly difficult mm. day? Yeah. Well, it's it's not really rocket science, the things that I do. (laughs) Um, You know, I make sure I drink a lot of water and and I get a lot of sleep. And if I can, I'll go and do some meditation or go go and do an extra yoga class just as a way to try and burn off some of that energy and, yeah, work, work it through. But certainly my business I'm learning that it's it's really hard because like all of us we can't predict when we're going to be busy and when you're mm-hmm. working on call and I'm you know have the clients that I'm waiting for babies to be birthed uh, you can go through periods where I think yeah I'm, I'm great like I'm really across my self-care and I feel like I'm really looking after myself 
and then it sort of sneaks up on me and I'll have a couple of mothers deliver in one week and uh, I think it works well. My, my hubby's really good at saying you, like, he'll sort of pull me up on it and say you haven't prioritised. Like I know you're really busy but you just need to make time. So um, I think sometimes that's helpful too when you're in the thick of it to have someone that's <laughs> sort of on the outside that can just say, okay, like enough, like you need to stop scheduling things and you need to have time away. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, but yeah, they're the main things for me. Lots of water, sleep when I can and, um, yeah, and try and go and exercise, move my body and that always works wonders. Well, that all sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And is is there something that you're reading or watching or listening to that you think other birth workers would find interesting, useful, juicy? doesn't have to be birth work related, but I always just think it's good to pull resources. Yeah. I'm not a reader. I have never been. So um, for me, it's podcasts. Like that's what I just go to because I'm in the car a lot. Um, I like the... Um, I've listened to a lot. There's, um, she, yeah, she's not a birth worker, but Jenna Kutcher, she has a, oh, yeah. a, a podcast. Yeah. Um, the gold digger podcast. She has just really clever ideas for business. So that's certainly what I've been enjoying lately. Um, just with some tips on how to, yeah, nurture your audience and, um, yeah, just learning some good things about how to basically use your platform for good. That's a very much a part of what I want to be doing. I'm not doing all this just for, you know, entertainment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's sort of something that, that's pouring a lot of, I'm pouring a lot of my energy into right now. Yeah. Mm. And mm. so is there anything in particular that you're up to that you want to plug? I mean, I feel like I probably know what you're going to say and I tell everybody I meet whether they're interested <laughs> in breastfeeding or not that they need you in their life because I know how much <laughs> my life. Is Aww. there anything in particular you want to plug? That's lovely. And I loved working with you as well too. Um well, yeah, my thing is just about, yeah, education. So I, while I love working with women in Melbourne, I can't always get to everyone and I think all women deserve good evidence-based, consistent press, breastfeeding support and education. So that's the whole reason why I made a video series on breastfeeding to educate women that geographically I can't get to, um, but even if I can get to them, um, they can do some education before they have their baby that's really going to set them up for success. So my whole thing is, yeah, about having having something you can access. So I've got videos that I've done for, for, for women, for um, women having babies, but I've got a, a new professional breastfeeding course that's coming out in May this year, uh, which is, yeah, obviously for professionals. So a lot of the stuff that I work with with women um, in private practice and just how to help you as if you're a professional, how to help your clients with their breastfeeding journey. Mm, which is amazing because the stuff that has been out there is so outdated and so daggy. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's just, it's like breastfeeding is like the, you know, the, the daggy version like compared to I think I feel like birth stuff is sort of a lot more modern and up to date and everything but breastfeeding is just left for you know like the daggy very dated education and it's not inspiring a lot of the information that was out there I just sat looking at it thinking this is not speaking to me at all no these women are in shoulder pads (laughs) yes they are yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, very interesting styling and music and you just sit there going, 
oh, I'm just so not feeling enlivened about breastfeeding. And, you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, social media, we, you know, and I'm not trying to glamorise breastfeeding by any means, but I'm just talking about having something that's, you know, good, that visually, that, that like speaks to you, that's, you know, the women that you, you identify yourself with that are having their babies these days, not someone from the 80s necessarily. Um, and, you know, just good production quality as well, good sound. I've, I've filmed a couple of breast crawls now and so that I think is important so that women can see visually, well, what is this going to look like when my baby does it and so they can have that good understanding before they actually get in the position of doing it for themselves mm. amazing yeah. amazing because yeah. I'm sure so many people who you trained as midwives or even as doulas who got a bit of this information but as you mm. say it's yeah totally not about glamorizing breastfeeding but I think the other issue that comes up is that there's not a lot of diversity yeah definitely and yeah and I'm really that's a really big yeah topic that I like to um share on social media on my page is about yeah, mothers from all over the world breastfeeding their babies. Um, my whole thing too is my 662 movement is about promoting the World Health Organization guidelines about helping women to successfully breastfeed over that first six weeks so that they can go on and hopefully exclusively breastfeed for the first six months and then continued breastfeeding until their child turns two if it's the right fit for them and their baby. So my 662 movement I do a lot of posts on but I actually tend to share more photos of toddlers breastfeeding, like, you know, getting uh, from one plus of age because I feel like there's a lot more photos that are shared of, of babies and, um, you know, newborns breastfeeding, which is awesome. Um, but I really like sharing the photos of, you know, because we're in a world, especially in Australia, we're very focused on it's socially acceptable to breastfeed a baby. It's not really after they start walking or mm. when they start getting teeth or whatever that person deems appropriate. It's no, there's never any information out there about, well, when is it actually beneficial for a child to breastfeed until when is sort of like if the more ideal age, if it's working for mum and baby, like what would be an age that it would be great if women breastfed to? So, yeah, that's why I quite like sharing pictures of, of toddlers breastfeeding because it's it's really is um yeah an incredible thing for them in that second year of life from a nutritional perspective but mainly for for their immune system it's it's major for for toddlers mm. Mm. Oh, this has been so good i oh, think good. like the snippets of things that sometimes we think are common sense mm. are actually not common sense mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Good. So I think um, even when we were talking before and you're like, oh, I don't know much about breastfeeding trauma. I'm like, actually, a lot of this is going to be stuff you do know. You do know, yeah. It's just when you hear it in that, I guess, yeah, packaging. Yeah. A lot of this is just like humanistic kind of stuff. Yeah. As in like how can we help and a huge part of that is um, not continuing to perpetuate anything that makes people feel shameful or like mm. they're a failure or that they should feel guilty Gosh. or yeah. any kind of stuff. Mm. So mm. Mm. it For should sure. come naturally to people. <laughs> yes. No. And we've yeah. kind of gone into some of the reasons for that. But, yeah, thank you so much Good. for talking to me about this stuff. I couldn't I think of it. anyone else I'd love to talk about boobs with. You. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you. And I loved it too. It's it's really good for me to also sort of just like stop and think about, yeah, the work that I do and that how I can do better in my practice. So, yeah, thank you for your time. Fantastic.
Thank you. <laughs> Yay! Go us! So if you hadn't thought about it already, maybe now you're starting to build up a bit of a picture that birth trauma isn't necessarily just confined to the birth. It can be it can be related to the birth, it can be related to the pregnancy, but sometimes the traumatic aspect of breastfeeding comes up completely and utterly unexpected, which makes sense because so many of us think, oh, breastfeeding's natural, it's normal, like it's just not it's not a learned skill we forget to think of it like a learned skill or at least lots of our clients do so what I'm going to do is put up that 4p analysis that Amberly and I talked about in terms of it gives you a bit of um it's a table really with a bunch of different factors about my background so predisposing things things that sort of led I suppose to breastfeeding not working out so wonderfully for me but also the protective factors so what got me through it what were some of the growth and optimistic type things because I'm all for that so I'll put that on the website and if you want to look at Amberly's you want to book one of her packages for your clients or you want to do some more training around breastfeeding that's really up to date and pretty you know the girl has good taste <laughs> you can go to maternalinstincts.com.au and you can find me and all the show notes from today's podcast and other information on drerin.com.au. The birth trauma training course is getting closer in terms of, I've met with a videographer this week, so we're going to talk about how to rebrand and repackage and make what I already did look nicer, (laughs) to put it really simply. And in the meantime, um, don't forget that I have a closed Facebook group just for birth workers to get support and guidance and information and build a community around this birth trauma stuff so that you're not isolated. So there's that. You can find that either through um, my website or you can find it just by looking for um, Dr. Erin Birth Trauma via Facebook. It should come up. And don't forget also that I do mentoring, supervision, coaching, a little bit of counselling, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to be trauma um, specific, but this is part of what I do in the background is support um, psychologists, wellness workers, social workers, counsellors, midwives, whoever it might be. It might be that you've got bullying issues at work. It might be that you're needing some support and guidance around how to support clients and also stuff to do with knowing that you've got your own traumas and maybe you need to start working through some of that I can help you with that too so that's all on the website as well other than that I hope you're having a lovely day and I will talk to you next time bye